Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I am blown away. Like it's not it's not news to me that that anti-choice folks are you know out there watching kind of ready to pounce. I did not mm-hmm. realize the extent of it though. How right. are they able to do this? I lady Kristen, at the time we're recording, this episode comes out the week that the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett are scheduled to get underway. Ooh, heaviest of sighs, yes, yes. Right, and of course, if confirmed, she'll fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Also, as of this recording, the central debate around Coney Barrett's appointment is whether it would mean the end of Roe v. Wade. But the reality, y'all, is that a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court doesn't really have to fuck with Roe to fuck with abortion rights. Exactly. Abortion rights are meaningless without abortion access. And for quite a while now, anti-abortion groups have been exploiting that fact with reckless abandon. And Caroline... I don't think I fully grasped just how mobilized the anti-abortion movement really is until hearing from today's guest about what it's actually like to build and open an abortion clinic in the U.S. these days. Abortion is still legal in the books. Um, It's still protected by the Constitution. So their strategy has pivoted to chipping away at people's access to abortion, to making it much more difficult to obtain and to making it much more difficult for clinics to provide by figuring out really strategic and smart ways to disrupt the services and to make services more expensive to provide. Nowhere else do public health and private politics collide like they do at abortion clinics. And today's guest, Amy Hagstrom-Miller, works smack dab in the middle of it. She's the CEO and founder of Whole Woman's Health, a network of eight abortion clinics in some of the most conservative areas of the country, like Texas. This episode, Amy is taking us beyond Roe v. Wade to give us a firsthand reality check of what it takes for abortion clinics to survive. Then next week, we'll find out why pro-life crisis pregnancy centers now easily outnumber abortion clinics in the U.S. But it's not all terrible news, y'all. Today, Amy is also going to tell us about how she took the state of Texas and its bullshit abortion restrictions all the way to the Supreme Court and won. Amy Hagstrom-Miller grew up in a very HGTV-esque family. Her dad was a custom home builder and her brother is an architect. So when she founded Whole Woman's Health in 2003, she took an active role in designing her clinics. Yeah, Amy thinks a lot about how physical spaces influence patients, from color and light to layout. 
people are very affected by physical environments. Um, I th- people are very affected by smell and by light and by color. Um, I think some of our emotional reactions to those things are really, really deep in our psyche. And I think similarly, people have very strong reactions to unplanned pregnancy and specifically abortion in this country. For Amy, creating a warm and inviting clinic doesn't just help her patients feel safe and comfortable. It's part of her mission to destigmatize abortion. You know, that stigma is something that's really used oftentimes as a weapon um, where people are shamed and um, made to feel isolated and separated. And so I think one of the things that I have really tried to do is create clinic environments that can break down some of those stigmas, that can be warm, that can be inviting, that can, you know, have sort of areas in the clinic where people can build connectivity and can um, be together because that connectivity and togetherness is one of the sort of premier things that really reduces stigma where people stop, start to feel less alone and they realize um, there are other people who share similar experiences. When you walk into a whole woman's health clinic, you'll wait for your appointment in a comfy chair surrounded by soft light and lavender walls. If you're there for an abortion, you'll be offered a fleece blanket and herbal tea afterward. Even the exam rooms have a pleasantly unladylike ring to them. The rooms are named after different women. So you may, instead of saying, we're going to do your ultrasound in exam room two, um, we may be you know, offering your ultrasound in Maya Angelou or Sojourner Truth or Angela Davis or, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt. Amy has also gotten creative about destigmatizing abortion outside her clinics. So in two of my clinics, I've had local muralists. I've hired them to come and paint beautiful murals on the side of the clinic. Um, and one of the clinics in McAllen, Texas is right on Main Street, like there's only a sidewalk, but that patients have to walk on. And so they're like physically encountering protesters in order to get in the front door. And we've just painted this beautiful mural with like local faces that says beautiful things like justice and dignity on the mural. And it's this great sort of artistic way to like step into that conversation. And just like the protesters just look like big meanies next to this beautiful mural. Protesters aren't the only big meanies who pose safety concerns for abortion providers. The National Abortion Federation has been tracking violence against clinics since the 70s, things including murder, bomb threats, arson, kidnapping, and harassment. And in 2018, they found that attacks on abortion clinics had reached an all-time high. Despite all of the safety threats, abortion clinics legally cannot block the public, a.k.a. protesters, from getting near the front door. Right. So in 2007, Massachusetts passed a law creating a 35-foot buffer zone around abortion clinics where anti-abortionists wouldn't be allowed to protest or harass clinic patients or staff. But it didn't take long for an anti-abortion group to sue the state, claiming the law violated their First Amendment rights to free speech. And seven years later, the lawsuit reached the Supreme Court, which unanimously agreed that the law went too far and was unconstitutional. In other words, anti-abortionist free speech outweighed protesters' right to privacy, safety, and access. Simply securing an affordable clinic space is extremely difficult, too. For example, when Amy needed to relocate a clinic in Minneapolis, the process took more than 18 months. She had to look at 80 different locations. 
you know, landlord after landlord, even people who would have described themselves as pro-choice or progressives um, just said, oh, we don't want to take that risk. We don't want to have protesters. We don't want to, um, you know, they're, they're thinking about, oh, that clinic could be, you know, vandalized or bombed or, you know, they may also be thinking about their stereotype. Who knows? But I'm pretty sure part of the variable is the stereotype of what kind of customers might they have, right? Because part of the stigma that's been sort of manufactured around abortion is that there's a certain kind of woman that may have an abortion or that there's a certain kind of doctor who would provide abortions um, when, in fact, um, you know, one in three women in this country have an abortion in their lifetime. Um, And, you know, almost 60 percent of those people who have those abortions are already parents you know, the majority of them are not teenagers. And, you know, I mean, the, the actual facts are very different from the narrative um, that's been perpetuated. Amy encountered a similar problem in Austin. An anti-abortion organization had swooped in and offered her landlord five years of rent up front in cash for both the clinic space and the office next door. Now, Amy was able to block the lease, but then the anti-abortion folks got sneakier with a new offer. It it didn't look like an anti-abortion organization at first, and and so the landlord kind of fell for it. Um, Turns out it was like a board member from this organization that used his private business to secure the building. So it was like some hedge fund or mutual fund kind of like financial business that it sounded like that's who was going to take over the building. Um, and then as soon as they secured the lease, they started building a crisis pregnancy center in the former you know, flagship clinic of Whole Woman's Health. In other words, the abortion clinic was replaced by a center that actively discourages abortion, which we'll get into next episode. Yeah, and it would have cost $250,000 to match that private group's offer, money Whole Woman's Health simply didn't have. After nine months, they secured a new space for the clinic, but that relocation still ended up costing them a hundred grand. The amount of time and energy that myself and my sort of leadership team spend looking at 80 properties, having these intense conversations with landlords and bankers, all of that energy and time could be, you know, devoted to direct patient care. But we have to do all this surrounding work in order to even just keep the clinic open. Once folks like Amy secure a location for the clinic, anti-abortion groups make it nearly impossible to build it. For instance, it took about five years to open the Whole Woman's Health Clinic in South Bend, Indiana. I'm I'm not kidding. Like Our project there was disrupted numerous times by anti-abortion folks who intimidated, like screamed and yelled at any contractor who went into the building, the plumber, the carpenter, um, electrician. They would follow them. They would follow them to their other jobs. They would tell other companies that maybe hired the same contractor, you know, these people are also building that new abortion clinic over there. You shouldn't use them. That's the kind of stuff that they do. But that's not all they do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if only harassing plumbers were the worst of it. In just the last decade, they've managed to also get hundreds of new legal abortion restrictions passed in 32 states. How that's happened and what it's meant for abortion clinics in those states, after a quick break. Thank you. 
We're back with Amy Hagstrom-Miller of Whole Woman's Health Abortion Clinics. Amy has not only had to hustle to secure spaces for her clinics, but she's also had to fend off relentless legal challenges. For decades since the passing of Roe v. Wade, anti-abortion folks have really been trying to figure out how either to reverse it or to narrow it. Um, And they have challenged Roe a few different times with some big cases you might have heard of, basically trying to, you know, chip away at the effectiveness of Roe. Like we mentioned before the break, that chipping away has happened through hundreds of state laws restricting abortion access in various ways. So... How were all those states allowed to do that? Well, today's anti-abortion legal strategy really took off after the Supreme Court decision in the 1992 case Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Here's a clip of Kate Michaelman, executive director of the National Abortion Rights Action League, or NARAL, reacting to that Supreme Court ruling on PBS NewsHour back in 1992. Well, I think when you cut through all the legal technicalities, um... What we see is the court giving states much more sweeping power to uh, create obstacles for women choosing abortion. Casey was the first time the Supreme Court accepted a case challenging Roe v. Wade. At issue was whether it was unconstitutional for Pennsylvania to require married women seeking abortions to provide written consent from their husbands. The majority agreed that, yes, it was unconstitutional, and the court reaffirmed Roe. But, and this is a big but, the Casey ruling also introduced a slippery measuring stick into abortion law called undue burden. Specifically, it said that states could pass new laws regulating abortion as long as those restrictions don't present an undue burden for women who want to terminate. Here's Kate Michaelman of NARAL again on PBS NewsHour. Before today, a woman could decide. After today, more and more politicians and government can intrude in this decision. I really think it was a devastating blow to women and their freedom of choice. Devastating indeed. In states across the country, anti-abortion networks set about using this Supreme Court ruling to create two major types of obstacles to abortion access. The first type of obstacles are focused on the patient. So things like banning insurance coverage for abortion or enforcing mandatory waiting periods. The waiting periods are sometimes 24 hours or 72 hours, or they um, require um, parental consent or parental notification, or they'll require um, certain tests that you have, like a forced ultrasound that you have to have, and then you have to wait 24 hours and you can't come back until you have that. That kind of like restriction on the patient. The other set of barriers? Trap laws, or targeted regulations on abortion providers. Nearly half of U.S. states have trap laws in place, and typically they center around forcing abortion clinics to meet the same standards as same-day surgery centers. Those design standards include wildly specific stipulations for things like hallway widths, HVAC systems, janitor closet drainage. These regulations are targeted against abortion providers specifically and not for other medical providers who provide a similar procedure to abortion. So like if you're doing a colonoscopy in your office, which is like 20 times more risky than an abortion, you don't have to comply with the regulations that they're putting forward for abortion. So they're not regulations based on science or medicine. They're regulations based on people's feelings and beliefs about abortion. But they're sort of couched under this 
sort of notion that they care about women's health and safety. To be clear, abortion has a 0.5% complication rate and is medically safer than having your tonsils removed. One of the sort of manufactured sort of falsities about abortion is that it's, it's surgery and that it's super risky and that it's difficult and dangerous, right? Um, abortion is actually a, a procedure. It's not a surgery. There's no cutting. There's no incisions. Um, the procedure can be very safely f- performed in a doctor's office or clinic setting. The actual procedure usually takes somewhere between five and 10 minutes. Um, people can, um, you know, they're ambulatory, they can be awake, they can walk and talk and do just fine afterward. Those scientific facts totally contradict all these burdens imposed by trap laws. In fact, the American Medical Association and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists both emphasize that trap laws have no medical benefit. Nevertheless, traps persisted, especially in the Southeast and the Midwest. According to the Guttmacher Institute, between 2011 and 2017, trap laws effectively closed down half the abortion clinics in Arizona, Kentucky, and Ohio, as well as the two largest abortion providers in Virginia. Every one of our clinics at that time, I had six in Texas, um, was over a million dollars to either retrofit or build a new facility. Keep in mind that we charge um, about $500 for an abortion. The vast majority of our patients um, have abortions for economic reasons. And in Texas specifically, they do not have health insurance and Medicaid doesn't cover abortion. So there's no way, if you think about the healthcare business side, there's no way for us to recoup that cost. In 2013, the Lone Star State passed its own Texas-sized trap law known as HB2. So on top of existing state laws already restricting abortion access, HB2 took aim at Texas providers and clinics in three main ways. Number one, no abortions over 20 weeks. Number two, doctors who perform abortions had to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of where the abortion was taking place. And number three, abortion clinics had to be retrofitted to meet all the safety and design standards of those same-day surgery centers we mentioned a minute ago. In reality, these restrictions can delay or even cut off women's safe access to reproductive health care. By requiring clinics to make massive, expensive renovations, they also drive up abortion costs. Amy also noticed how trap laws tax the patient experience. Pretty pastel walls had to be covered up with sterile white paint, and nurses had to unnecessarily suit up for abortion procedures as if they were entering a surgical theater, kind of like wearing a COVID hazmat suit instead of a mask. Not surprisingly, most abortion clinics in Texas weren't able to comply with the HB2 regulations. For instance, at one clinic, the cost of beefed-up refrigeration and HVAC systems plus new staffing requirements made it 40 percent more expensive to run. So when HB2 was enacted, it shut down 38 of the state's 44 abortion clinics. And so the effect is... The anti-abortion movement has not successfully overturned Roe, but they've made Roe meaningless. 
in more and more communities across the country. So the right to abortion exists on paper, but what does it mean if there's no clinic near you and you can't travel anywhere and um, you have to wait so many days and, and you know, you can't use your Medicaid? Like, so what? It's an abstract right that actually has no meaning in your, your life. That's been their strategy over the last few decades. And it worked for a long period of time, really until Whole Woman's Health knocked them down in the Supreme Court in 2016. Yeah, that's right. Amy Hagstrom Miller and her Whole Woman's Health clinics in Texas weren't going down without a fight. We're going to take a quick break, y'all. When we come back, Amy gloves up and goes to Washington. Cue the Rocky theme. We're back with Whole Woman's Health CEO and lifelong reproductive rights advocate, Amy Hagstrom-Miller. Now, y'all, in the intro to this episode, we promised you a Supreme Court victory. But before Amy found herself in the highest court of the land, she was wading through HB2's new building regulations that her Texas abortion clinics had to comply with. Now, the woman knows her way around a set of blueprints— But figuring out how and whether her clinics could be renovated to meet the new standards and what that would all cost was above her level of expertise. So in 2014, Amy called up an architect who'd actually designed abortion clinics before. That architect concluded that adhering to HB2 was implausible. Many Texas clinics were inside small buildings and locations where it would be physically impossible for providers to just tack on an addition. Getting clinics up to code would also cost providers millions, and most would likely have to close. Rather than give in and shut down, Amy took that information from the architect and began building a legal case to take Texas and HB2 to court. We were able to show how it had a disproportionate effect on women of color, on rural women and young people. Um, Over 150,000 people of reproductive age had to drive more than 150 miles um, to get access to abortion. You know, so it was good evidence for the case, but the detrimental effect it had in the state of Texas, it basically crumbled the fabric of care for abortion services in the state over that time period. Can y'all say undue burden? Uh, Amy said it with a lawsuit. (laughs) Armed with data to prove how HB2 was virtually impossible to comply with and actually harmed women's reproductive health care, Whole Woman's Health sued the state of Texas. And in March 2016, the case made it all the way to the highest court in the land. High drama at the Supreme Court today as the justices took up the biggest abortion case in 25 years. It's a fight over a tough new Texas law, one that many other states are looking to copy. I got to tell you, as we get to the Supreme Court and there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing like sitting in the courtroom, which I got to do and hear our case argued and hear the liberal justices, um, you know, Kagan, Sotomayor, Breyer, Ginsburg, like quote the evidence from our case chapter and verse. Um, You know, they had just read it all and they were just like, well, Mr. Texas attorney. 
So what you're saying is, and there was a time when like Sonia Sotomayor just like leaned back in her chair and was like, really, you know, know? (laughs) and just like watching not only the mastery they had of the evidence, which to me was like so personal, right? These stories that we had told of the patients that were affected and the clinics that had to be closed and how far people had to drive, but also just seeing them, you know, be able to argue these points so strongly um, and so powerfully and knowing that 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 was our work. In June of 2016, the court ruled in Amy's favor. In her concurrence with the majority opinion, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, rest in power, wrote, It is beyond rational belief that HB2 could genuinely protect the health of women. When a state severely limits access to safe and legal procedures, women in desperate circumstances may resort to unlicensed rogue practitioners at great risk to their health and safety. In fact, y'all, RBG herself was never a Roe v. Wade stan. She recognized that our constitutional right to privacy is a pretty flimsy legal protection for such a divisive issue. She also understood that not only are abortion rights meaningless without access, but that anti-abortionists could easily figure that out, too, and trap accordingly. That's also why the whole woman's health ruling in 2016 was such a big fucking deal. You know, I'm told it's the biggest, um, you know, legal win in the reproductive health rights and justice field in a generation. We were able to demonstrate how this law had an undue burden on people in Texas, that the that the burden this law put forward, you know, greatly outweighed the benefits. And so we had a huge win on paper, but still to date, we only have 21, I think, or maybe 22 clinics open that provide abortion in the state of Texas because the law effectively shuttered pretty much every rural clinic in the state, except my clinic in McAllen. And so even though we had this huge legal win that law effectively crumbled still to this day half of the clinics that provided abortion in the state prior to that. There is a silver legal lining, though. As Amy told us, one of the most significant aspects of the Supreme Court win was that abortion providers in at least a dozen other states have successfully used the precedent set in Whole Woman's Health v. Texas to either repeal or block trap laws from going into effect including the Supreme Court ruling earlier this year that struck down an extremely similar trap law in Louisiana. It's been used in a whole bunch of places, and that's just, like, incredibly meaningful that our work in Texas could have that kind of life and that that our case could be referred to in case law. You know, I had my niece, her um, fiancé is in, in law school, and she called me the other day. She's like, he just read your case. Like, it's part of, like, it's in the textbooks, you know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, for me, that's it's super personal for other folks. It's like, you know, one of the big abortion cases. Um, But that stuff is just like, you know, um, super meaningful. You know, Caroline, our conversation with Amy Hagstrom Miller reminds me of something Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote that was unrelated to abortion. So in her dissenting opinion to the 2013 Supreme Court case that severely weakened the Voting Rights Act, she quoted Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And she added, but only if there is a steadfast commitment to see the task through to completion. 
So for me, at least, like, I, I'm just trying to reframe all of my pro-choice anxiety right now into a steadfast commitment. Like, yes, shit is dire, but we have to keep on pushing back. Exactly. And pushing back on every front, not just protesting in the streets, but also in the voting booth, because, y'all, it's our state legislators who stand between us and a bunch more trap laws. It's also our state legislators who are helping anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers thrive. And that's what we're tackling in our next episode. Be sure to tune in to find out why crisis pregnancy centers have been springing up all over the place, the services they actually provide, and why it's so easy to accidentally end up at one. To learn more about Whole Woman's Health, head on over to wholewomanshealth.com or follow Amy Hagstrom-Miller on Twitter. She's at Amy HM. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unladylike Media. You can also support Caroline and me directly by joining our Patreon. You'll get weekly bonus episodes, listener advice, and more fun at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marante transcribes our tape. Special thanks to Lori Brown for her insight on this topic. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Chris Bannon, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week, we'll find out why crisis pregnancy centers outnumber abortion clinics in the U.S. three to one and how you could easily end up at one like our guest, Beth Vile. I realized I was probably in a crisis pregnancy center when I was like waiting and I could see some of the books had some like religious leaning titles. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, ah, I know what this is. Oh, shit. And they're like, we don't have any treatments, but we do have a lot of prayer. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to miss this episode or any episode this season. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. And this is all caps. Find out whether your state and local legislators have supported trap laws and vote them the fuck out this November. Amy said it. Amy said it with a lawsuit. Amy said it with a lawsuit. Amy said it with a... Okay. Can you give me that line again before I spin out? (laughs) Stitcher. Stitcher.